Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week. Please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming shows. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. And thanks to my podcasting partner and co-host Patrick from Pullstring Press for this great studio. Hey, Patrick, good morning. Good morning, Mark. Patrick, uh, old friend in the studio today. Um, I'm thrilled to introduce you to Doug Mardrum of Mardrum Wines. Doug, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Now, I'm trying to remember when we first met, but I, I'm going to guess that it was at some community service thing we were both at. I think, <laughs> was it the Chamber? It was probably the Chamber yeah, of Commerce. Yeah, I was on the board of the Chamber of Commerce right, way, when way back Cushman, when, when Cushman was the, the his, Lord the and rain, Master. Yeah. <laughs> the, the reign of Steve Cushman. The reign of Steve Cushman. Oh, he always talks nice about you guys. Come on. We love, no, we yeah. love him. <laughs> oh, I'm, my I'm, gosh. I'm, I'm a believer. I bow down to the to the Master. Yeah, we, we <laughs> you know, and it, it's great. It, he's... He's retired and 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 loving doing his art. And you know mm-hmm. when you ask him wh- what he is, he's a poet, oh, nice. right? And that's really where he wants to be in life. Yeah. And uh, he was a fantastic mentor for me because I was, you know, my background was computer animation and Wavefront. And when we got bought by Silicon Graphics, they said, "How involved are you in the community?" And I said. Why would I do that? We're running a business, <laughs> yeah. and, and now look at you. <laughs> yeah, and and they and they said go go find something to do. And shortly thereafter, I got invited to the uh, economic development project. Correct, right? That Which was. Is, is it? Did you get roped into that? Oh that, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that was. Um, with um, remind me the head of the news press who we've had on the show and Steve? I'm bummed Steve. Yep, thank you, who uh, ran that project and. That's where it all started. Yeah. And well, the chamber was a great experience for me too. And, right? and uh, Steve was a big early supporter of when I was when I had the restaurant, and and he that that whole that whole community of knowing the guys and the, the guys and the gals on the, on the chamber was uh, very um, very influential for me. I, I met a lot of my early customers uh, through the chamber. Did you get into <laughs> hospitality from the what was your what was your door into that? Um, I grew up in Woodland Hills, California, and uh, I worked my way through high school uh, in restaurants. I was either a cook or a server uh, in restaurants, and I did the same thing when I went to college. I went to UCSB, and so I worked uh, uh, worked at the Lobster House and Borsodi's and (laughs) – Oh my All gosh, Borsodi's. Yeah, I remember Borsodi's. Oh, I remember go- Borsodi's was the old school coffee house where you had, it was like, there should have been a beatnik. I wasn't quite hippie enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was sort of an outcast. This is an Isla Vista. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was the place. Yeah. So I ran off-campus food service for UCSB. Oh, you did? And I was the chef manager, Tropicana Garden Studio oh, sure. Plaza and Fountain Blue. Yeah. Uh, back in the day. So I'm going to, th- I'm thinking that was um, 70. One seventy-two. Yeah, that was the late seventies, early eighties. Got it. When I was there, I graduated UCSB in nineteen eighty-one. Got it. That's we had. We they gave us two dollars and sixty-five cents per student. Right. For all three meals, (laughs) all they could eat. Yeah, that's uh, that was the day. And no wonder they threw food at us because they said, "Why you can't feed us this?" Well, it was always so funny because we were all so poor. Right. Um, And I, I would 
be in the kitchen with my roommates and I'd be pre- preparing, you know, like an omelet or something and they'd be eating. The, all they ate was top ramen. Right, sure. <laughs> Breakfast, cents. lunch, and yeah, dinner. Yeah. And they're like, why do, you, why do you go to so much trouble when you could just put boiling water in the cup? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like well, a, new, <laughs> a new technology in 81. That had to exactly. Be like a big... No, exactly. So, w- so you get out of school and did you when did the entrepreneurial bug hit you? Oh, it hit me early on. I, oh, really? I, we, yeah. Even as a kid in in Woodland Hills, we had little we had little businesses in our in our neighborhood. Okay, how old were you? Was the first one? Tell me, I want to hear that story. Uh, I think probably the first one. I was probably thirteen or fourteen. Uh, a buddy of mine and I uh, climbed the trees to get the mistletoe, and we would package it up and staple it up with a little red ribbon and and take it down to Robinsons. We'd be in front of Robinsons and selling it. These two. Two cute little guys. The Robinsons on Van Nuys Boulevard. No, the Robinsons on um, on Topeka Canyon. Okay, right. Because you Topanga were that, you were in West Valley. Yeah, it was West Valley. Because I grew yeah. up in Panorama City. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so we I, were we were more we were more West. We were you know that was Warner Center. Uh, yeah. It was Warner Warner Ranch before it became Warner Center. It was actually a great place to grow up. Um, so we did the mistletoe thing. We had little restaurants we'd set up in in, in the front yard of the house and sell hamburgers to the neighbors. <laughs> nice. Um, I had I had a I had a four year old accommodate us the other night uh, in front of his house. Right. He just kept, he he had he just kept bringing things out and putting them like setting, and eventually he came out and he gave us all a penny, and then he came around and sold newspapers to everybody. <laughs> it was really the best service I've had in Santa Barbara, hands down. Like, <laughs> if you can find it, it's Oscars and it's incredible. Th- this show is is about celebrating that entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. and trying to figure out where the the origin story of that was are are entrepreneurs born or they bred you know that all of that um tell me were you in a family that encouraged that kind of behavior i think we were in a family that had a very strong work ethic um we you know we were we worked at our with our family i did the pool and and i had to clean up after the dog and we we had chores that we did get paid for but early on i saw the i I liked having a little extra money in my pocket, sure. and so I always was trying to find ways to earn earn money. But uh, my parents, uh, and my mother was a, a school teacher, and then eventually on the uh, uh, worked for the county schools here in Santa Barbara. Uh, and then my dad was an engineer. Um, but it was a very it was always a very competitive sort of in, environment um, uh, when when growing up with my with my peers. My, how many how many siblings? I have two siblings: an older brother and an older sister. Got it. So you were the the baby. I was the baby, and I was actually uh, five years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I actually know my brother and sister better uh, as adults than I did as a as a kid. So the the one thing about um, doing that kind of business, home business, is the seasonality of it. And so you people don't want to buy mistletoe in July, right? <laughs> and so that dawned on you. Right. Like here, I'm I'm flush with cash, up into the holidays, and then I use it to buy Christmas presents right. or games for myself or whatever. In my case, my first real cash thing was painting Christmas windows. Right. And oh, so it's sort of the same. Right. Deal. And so it was the same. Yeah. And it was the same thing. It was like, okay, it's January. I'm out of money. Right. What did you do then? Well, my neighbors, uh, the Pregersons. He's a famous judge on the Sixth Circuit. Isn't it six funny how you remember that name so clearly? Yeah. Well, that name. Well, he was a he was just a great guy and another mentor to me. And he really he was a, a federal judge. Uh, he had pigeons, and so I took care mm. of his pigeon coop uh, all year round. But then they'd go to Hawaii for a month, and I would take care of their garden and their house and uh, 
for, for every summer for many, many years. And uh, that was sort of the summer summer income was was taking care of his house and taking care of his garden. He had a fabulous garden, and he had an incredible amount of, 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 of pigeons. Uh, <laughs> and looking, we would, looking back. Well, then we would take them. He would take them down to the county courthouse down in downtown L.A., and he would release them. What? And my, I would be tasked to uh, – time when they would fly back into the coop because they so all So he would call you? No, no. Well, he, oh. would, he, would, he would just oh, they, tell me when he'd be there at 9 o'clock and let yes. me know when Pigeon XY468 arrives. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, he'd fly in and go into the coop. I'd go check its leg, and sure enough, that was the, that was the one. What an awesome... <laughs> I, wait, wait. Why was he letting him go at the courthouse? I guess that's because well, that's where he that's was That's where at. he was at. Yeah, he okay. worked there. But he, what, yeah. They're homing pigeons that he was seeing, you know, he loved. I just, I thought maybe it was some kind of like, because there would be other like wild pigeons at the courthouse. Maybe it was like a day. No, no, that's just where him. he worked. And he, <laughs> he just would get to work and release a pigeon. I'm sure it was quite strange <laughs> to see the judge getting out of his car. And right. Living. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, so that was quite fun. And, and um, So what did you study at UCSB? I studied uh, business econ. And... So you of all the things you could choose, you where did food come into this though? Uh, well, I was cooking in restaurants as a got it. So it was just that job, just just a job. And but I think the main turning point for me was you know um, there was a point where I was making quite a bit of money as a waiter. Um, See. Yeah, but it's it's that weird money, right? Where it's like it feels like a lot of money because you're 21, you don't really have bills. But I was offered a management position where uh, you make less money. Where I make work harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And make less money. Yeah. Now Take that note, that kids. for a young note, for a young kids. person is a hard call, right? Yeah. Uh, and um, I took the management position with the thought that hey, I'll learn about how to run a restaurant right. so I can someday open a restaurant. Right. And but the the anger. Uh, closing up at <laughs> 11 o'clock when all my friends were had left You're with $600, the door, $600 right? in their pocket. And yeah. I'm, I'm locking the door waiting for the you know the, the guys to finish the dishes. For, and, for a $5 hourly or something. Well, not much, you know. Yeah. Uh, but that was a good lesson. I tell that to people. I tell yeah. that to young people, hey, look, look, look at the long term. You yeah, know, right, you, you right. Know, you, you're waiting is a, you know, waiting is an incredible skill. I mean, it really is. I, I, was, a, I was a good waiter. I felt like I was good at it. Um, you, have to re, you have to remember a series of, of, of uh, actions and then reprioritize them very, very quickly in a very rapid pace of time. And uh, it's like chess almost. You have to be thinking uh, thinking that way. So I liked being a waiter, but I, I saw the opportunity of being management. So I managed a, 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 the main one was the Lobster House with Al Steinman. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> who was another mentor. who was a great mentor. And a, and a, a celebrity. What When it's interesting how that, that – or those early jobs color uh, all your experiences the rest of your life. Absolutely, I learned so much with Al about how to how to run a restaurant. I I do I did the same things that Al made me do when I first got hired there as an assistant manager. He made me work every position. I had yep. to go mm-hmm. fillet fish. Yep. Mm-hmm. I had yep. to go do dishes. Yep. I had to go. Wait how are you going to know if it's being done wrong? Exactly. Right. How do you know? How do you have empathy for what other people's job yeah. is and what they have to do? So I did that same thing with my restaurant mm-hmm. at McDonald's, which and I was. What was a, the name of your restaurant? The wine cask restaurant. Exactly. Yeah. Wait, wait. I want to hear the McDonald's part. The McDonald's thing. The the the, con, the they were very very strong about consistency. Oh yeah. They everything had Huge. to be exactly the same every time. Yep. And that was a that was a mantra. And that's the same thing even in fine dining. If someone comes in and has a rack of lamb and they loved it, they want it to be exactly the same when they come in a month later. You can't just you know you need to you need to figure out what you're doing and do it right and do it consistently. Otherwise, don't put it on your menu. Exactly. Or if you could make it better, make it better and make it consistently better. Right, right. So, so 
my path through food service was not through fine dining. Mine was through institutional food service. Right. So I was a chef at Westmont, and I ran off-campus food service at UCSB, and I did Pepperdine, and I, I did all of that stuff. Right. But I was fortunate enough to have a, a mentor at Westmont, my first real serious job. He said, just because we're feeding 1,200 people, they shouldn't suffer from that, they should have a really great experience with the food. So think about them, one one meal that you repeat 1,200 times. Right. And he was he was adamant about that. And what I, as, an, as more of an artist attempting to work in the kitchen, I looked at fine dining, exactly what you said, which is the food has to be the same because when they come back in a month and they've brought their friends, you're going to love this lamb. It right. is absolutely amazing. It better taste pixel for pixel. Exactly Perfect, right? Right. right. Um, and so as the chef, the food stays the same, the people change. In institutional, the people stay the same for four years right. while they're there at school. So the food has to change. Right. So for me as a chef, it was phenomenally more interesting. I didn't last very long at all in the, the commercial restaurant part because right. it was like, Two weeks, I've got this menu locked. I'm, I'm done. You know, let let me go someplace uh, where I can is, spread it my It is wings. really a challenge, and that right? is that is why chefs love doing specials and they yeah, love doing tasty menus. And uh, when I go to fine dining establishments now, I always ask the chef, just you know, please cook for me because yeah. they love to do that. Exactly. I mean, because you're right that that day after day, making exactly the same dish, you know. Is okay, tough. Wait. Now we did it seasonally, though. We changed our menu every three to four months because right. we would not put. Uh, you know, heirloom tomatoes on the menu in, in <laughs> January, in January, February, <laughs> right. which I just still am, you know, seeing like restaurants. How do you do that? Right. How do you do that? How yeah. can you serve that dish? Right. Because uh, they don't, they're not ripe. They're not ready to go. Where, where are you going in town, Doug? What's, what's, give us some hot tips. What do you, oh, where, where do you, I eat? Yeah. What have you found lately that, <laughs> well, no, because there's, there's a real struggle. Like when we, we, cause we, we live in this town and this town is, is primarily serves tourists a lot, but then there's these other restaurants that are serving right. us locals. And it's like, how do you stay kind of, you know? My my contention is that everybody has like four to six restaurants that they eat at. Yeah, and yeah. that's it. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, when I opened my restaurant, people were coming by. They'd say, "Oh, you know, we're gonna come and eat at your restaurant." I said, "No, I want you to eat at my restaurant six times a year." Oh, that's easy. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna keep track of it. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'll, and I get your phone number. And sure enough, you know, people, it is you. You think about it. How many times you eat at a restaurant more than six times a year? So I will tell you my six times a year there restaurant. You go. That's oh. what I want to hear. Uh, yeah. Certainly, Bouchon. Uh, yeah, of course. I eat at a lot, and okay, I, wait, wait. I, I and love Mitchell. Drill in. What do you What do you really enjoy that they make there? Um, well, the crab cakes are off the charts. Okay. Uh, the 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 salad lyonnaise that they make, yep. I just absolutely love, and I, that's a salad I make and one of my yeah. signature dishes. But he does it just off the charts great. Yeah. The service is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, the atmosphere is good. It's friendly, and uh, Mitchell's a consummate host. And, yeah, he and is. So Bouchon is 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 tops. We go because we can walk there mm-hmm. uh, to Paneavino probably once every two weeks. Mm. And that's an upper village in Montecito. And Pietro is a, just another great restaurant owner. Uh, we go to Arigato. Mm-hmm. Uh, we love Arigato. Uh, I love how they remember you there. I yeah. mean, that's one of the big things no, in good. hospitality. Just it's even like, the nod, you know. That's, yeah, yeah. that's just the, the, you know. Well, yeah. I was just going to say, because you just mentioned the first two restaurants you mentioned, um, 
you identify their owners. And I think that, that, that that's something that so often, you know, the casual diner might, might forget to do, which is to say, like, hey, who, who owns it? Who, who, who provided this food for me right. today? Like, who, right. who am I paying? Who's, you know, like, and, and, and knowing the owner or keeping track of the owner is a really valuable yeah, thing. The world has changed. People yeah. now want to know who their farmer is. Yeah, yeah. They want to know yeah. who's making their wine. They want to know the name they of know the that chicken. Exa- I mean, literally, you're exactly right, Mark. Yeah. They want to know everything about what that is. It's, it's providence. Not, yeah. It's not yeah. just, you know, opening a can and putting it in it. It's people want to know where everything came from and who made it and who's done well, it. Well, and if I'm there more than six times a year, you know. So yeah. who, who else? Where else are you? So um, we got three. Well, we, we go to Lucky's a lot. Yeah. Uh, okay. Lucky's is also a tremendous supporter of Marjoram Wines. Okay. Uh, they pour M5 by the glass and have, have poured it for years now, and they're, they're just a great. That's where my wife on our first, um, on our second date met Lionel Richie. All right. <laughs> This I didn't know. <laughs> it was a really great moment. She's just like, I think that's Lionel Richie out there. I'm going to go give him a hug. And she, and like, she did. <laughs> yeah. I love that yeah. about her. Yeah. Number five. Uh, Trade Luna. Yeah. Um, going there Sunday night. Yep. We go there and they're, you know, it's interesting because they, um, and I, you know, Gene and I love Gene. Sure. Uh, and, and he has a policy of their, of, of it, a Trade Luna of only serving Italian wines. Mm. It's just a policy. Okay, but they're they're also one of the great customers because they sort of sneak marjoram wines in. Oh, do they? <laughs> yeah, you heard it here, everybody. Go and ask for some M5. You can have a policy that you break regularly. Of that's course. the that's well, he does it as a, a special. Guideline. Yeah. Guideline. So I was walking across the street at uh, Coast Village Joe the other day, and and uh, the guy who buys the wine there's this nice guy, and he he stops and goes, "Hey, I just bought three cases of rosé. I'm putting it on special by the glass." I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> and number six, or oh. number yeah. Number six. Let Number, me see yeah. where else do we go. Well, we go to the ranch a lot too because we can walk upstairs or downstairs. Downstairs. Yeah. And what does that mean to our listener in Finland who's going? What are you it's guys a plow talking and angel. about? Plow and Angel restaurant. What do you love about Plow and Angel? I love sitting outside with yeah. those lights mm-hmm. yeah. and that yeah. that ambiance. They have yeah. a stunning wine list and um, yeah. if a wine list that huge, uh, you can find. You know, it's extremely expensive. But you could, if you dig down and find the the 1995 uh, Giacomo Bologna uh, Brico de Lucione Barbera de Alba that no one even can pronounce. Much you did less, a great much, job. Much, of much that. less they know they don't know what it is, and it's been on the list for now ten years, hmm. and no one's bought a bottle, and it's the same price it was ten years ago no. because they forgot to change the price, and they haven't changed the price. They just don't. Then I buy that. I, I like. I work through that whole case of that wine. I think it was $90 on the wine list. It's I'm, probably it's probably wine that retails now for $90 a bottle. I might have to edit that out so that it doesn't get used up. <laughs> no, it's all gone. Oh, is it, oh it's gone oh, now. It's all gone. Good. I drink yeah. it all. Yeah. Or my wife and I drink Yeah, don't mention something you're currently working through. <laughs> so uh, in restaurant news, um, Oliver's oh, on yeah. Coast Village Road. Yep. So, is this the vegan place? Uh, plant, plant-based. Plant-based. Okay. Plant-based. Yeah. And... Uh, it's uh, run by Matthew Kenny, and um, Craig McCaw owns mm-hmm. the property, and they've spent what well over a year. Oh no, that, that would be more like four years. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, my folks stayed there when I graduated UCSB in 2011 with my my grad degree. They stayed at the the right the hotel right behind. Yeah. It. And it was open for breakfast then, and that was 2011. That was it. So it's been yeah four yeah. or five years. Four or five years. So Matthew called me a couple years ago. Because um, I studied under Matthew when I was doing oh, my really? raw vegan stuff. Oh, really? And 
uh, he was on our TED stage in um, oh, really? 2011 when we were at the Music Academy, and he did a whole his look for his TED talk. Um, I, I will. You know, we've struck up a friendship mainly because I've I've gone into the restaurant and 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 talked to him about wine. Yeah. Um, I sort of did them a a. a, a I, so I, you know about uh, his his the place in Abbott Kinney, plant food and wine. Correct. Is he serving your wines there? Uh, I don't think he's serving at Abbott Kinney. I I will wish he w- would, um, but he definitely are using my wines at the New Oliver's. That is just I we can't wait because um, he called and said we have this opportunity. He had been looking at the public market, mm. and then he said, "What do you think, Mark? And you know, will this?" market go for that kind of food and i said we've got um uh, the place mesa verde up mm-hmm. on you know up on um cliff drive right, right. and that's it Our, it's true I and mean, it, that's it the it, places have not been able to it's make funny it. when you when people hear that it's going to be vegan or plant-based it, it i mean it's everyone sort of derides that which is sort of interesting and i always mention well there's true food you ever heard of that restaurant you know, do you know that restaurant? No. It's a restaurant out of Phoenix, uh, Arizona. Uh, it's plant-based, uh, uh, even to the point of a lot of the things are microbiotic. And it is killing. They just opened up right. in, in right. a restaurant in Santa Monica. They have one in Newport Beach. Tasty food sells. Yeah, and it's really good food, and it's yeah. it's good for you, too. So I think there is a place for Oliver's, and I'm really excited about them to be open. That's why I just went in there cold and introduced myself to Matthew and, and – um, and help. I sort of wrote their first wine list, which they oh, they, nice. they hired a sommelier, which sure. who will write his wine list, his own wine list. But I sort of gave him an idea of what I thought would be great wines with that food. Everything that was sustainably farmed and biodynamic right. and organic. And so they really want to go there, go that route. We were in New York um, six years ago, and my wife had read about um, Matthew's restaurant in one of her. And she says, "We've got to go to this place." And I said, "I am. It's it's snowing." And you want to go to a raw food restaurant? Because no, <laughs> let's go. And we we get out, and it's uh, down by Union Square, and, and we're walking through the snow. And I said, okay. And we walked by St. Louis Ribs joint, <laughs> and I said, okay, here's the deal. If I'm still hungry, I'm getting ribs right. to go back to the room. It's only fair, right? And, she's, and she said, okay. And and we go in, and I look at the menu. Dessert ribs. And I. I couldn't decide. It was all so amazing. Like, I'd never even heard of those combinations of things. Yeah. You think of vegetarian, mm-hmm. you think of, okay, I'm going to get pasta. Right. I mean, this is so not that at all. And no. it's five-star white linen. And we ended up doing the tasting menu because I couldn't decide. Oh, and great. I said, it's yeah. like 60 bucks, and we're going to and, – and when he does the tasting menu, you both have different things. Oh, that's neat. So you have and 10 if, courses. <laughs> and if you have four people – all four have different oh, foods. That's very ambitious. Oh, and then what you do is you just move the plates from right. one to another and you taste. Extremely and that's how everyone's ambitious. eating now. No, the, the, in the entire Western United States, I don't know if it's happening in, in the East Coast yet, but everyone's sharing everything. No one, no one takes a plate of food and just and holds it, holds well, you, it by yeah. their side and eats it. Everyone shares everything. Now. You didn't mention Lakita, but that's the one that like uh, the tapas place down across from the train station that that everybody's kind of been going to for that same oh. reason because yeah, it's small plates, small plates, tapas, yeah, right? Yeah. The whole thing. So we're we're th- we're thrilled to hear about that. When did you? When did the winery start? When so, because um, that's a long play. Yeah, it is a long play, <laughs> uh, but I started very, very small. You know, my first vintage was about 400 cases. 
Um, I had a, a situation, and I'll try to make this a short story. Uh, we have time. Okay. I was in um, New Orleans, and I had I had bought an auction item to go down to New Orleans, go to the jazz festival, oh, yeah, yeah. and, and at eat at one it of all. our nonprofits here. In yep, town. exactly yes. right. To eat at all the the Emeralds restaurant. So we ate at Emeralds <laughs> the first night. We ate yeah. at Nola the yep. second night, and yep. then the last night we we're going to Delmonico's. Yeah. And uh, I'm walking to Delmonico's, Emeralds head chef is there, and and this guy who I'd never met, who's the psalm for four all the Emeralds restaurants, this guy named Chris Robles, uh, he said, hey, you know, you mind if we do a tasting menu? And I'm like, absolutely not. That'd be great. So we had a 13-course tasting menu. So you asked, okay, so back up. You you asked, you didn't see a tasting menu. So you said, could no, no, we, the, oh, there no, was he, one. Yeah, he no, he offered a tasting menu. We walked to the door. He goes, hey, would you mind, can we just feed you? And I'm like, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Of course. You know, that's a classic Emeralds thing, you know, where yeah. he, he comes to your table and said, you know, may I feed you? And he goes, yes, you know, you want, you want them to do that. Yeah. They put out 13 plates of food, which was remarkable in and of itself. But the psalm brought me uh, 13 different wines, most of which I'd never heard of, and most of which I thought were great. You have to understand, this is at the time when I had a grand award list. I was the, at the top, absolute top of my game. I was, you know, I'm still one of the smartest wine guys in the room, but it was a mind-boggling experience for me. And, wow. and he a rose lot of times, to the occasion, Oh, yeah, sure. but a lot of yeah. times you go to restaurants. I remember another restaurant I went to New York. The guy says, let me do a tasting menu. I'll pair the wines. And the wines I'd never heard of, and they were all crap. Yeah. That's why I hadn't heard of them. But in this case, they were all perfect and perfect with the food. Mm. And I was amazed by his his presence and his his, his abilities. And we were drinking bourbon with the chef and, and my wife, and we were sitting around the fireplace at Delmonico's. It must have been 2 in the morning, and we, we were drunk, probably, um, <laughs> which is okay. Sure. Um, and um, he said, so what, is your, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, what I really want to do is I really want to make wine. I've, I'm so in love, I love wine, and I want to make wine. He goes, you know what I want to do? And I said, no. He goes, I want to come out and run your restaurant. And I'm like, seriously? What? He goes, yeah, my dream is to move to Santa Barbara and what? run your restaurant. And I'm like, great. What was his name? Chris Robles. He he and I shook hands. Yeah. And I wake up the next morning going, oh, t- expletive. Did I hire that guy? Did I, did I just? <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. I, I shook his to, hand. Am I you making know, moving expenses? <laughs> Is this like? And he did fly out. We did another interview. We showed him the properties. And, um, and yeah, we did hire him. Mm-hmm. And he did. Uh, take over as the general manager and sommelier of the restaurant, and I took a step back. And that freed you up to go? Yep, called Fred Brander and asked Fred Brander if I could uh, rent a little space in his winery, and he goes, well, not really because I don't want people to see you there, but you could build a little wall <laughs> in the Shea huh. that would make my, sh- my my winery a little bit smaller, but you'd have your own entrance, your own pad, and no, yeah. one, no one ever, I was completely hidden to the general public, huh. and I, I built a little space in there, and and uh, with Fred's help. Uh, and then you went and bought grapes? I bought grapes, yeah. Where'd you buy them? Uh, initially, I bought, I bought from my friends uh, mm-hmm. because I was in, with the restaurant. I knew all these vineyard owners, so I bought right. from the Beckmans, Parisima Mountain. Yeah, I mean, and, you're uh, in Santa Barbara. Yeah. yeah like, on, I mean, it's right. like... And, yeah. they, and they were so generous about it. Like, oh, you know, Dougie, you want to make a little wine? How cute. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you're making 400 cases. It's not like right. you're going to... No, I was buying drink. a ton of yeah, this and yeah. a ton of that, but... Um, you know, I bought from the Vogelzangs. I bought from the McGinley. Well, it wasn't the McGinleys at the time, but the Afromskis. Um, I bought. So I want. I set out to make two wines. I, my two favorite wines in the world is I like uh, Loire Valley Sauvignon Blanc, uh, oftentimes known as Sancerre or Puy Fumé. That's what I love in the restaurant. That's what I love to drink. And so I'm going to make that wine. 
And my other favorite wines were northern and southern Rhone wines. So southern Rhone wines are Grenache-based, and we make a wine called M5 now for mm -hmm. 17 years, mm -hmm. uh, which is a Grenache-based uh, red wine. I've and enjoyed we, it several times. And then we make Syrah, yeah. and that's a northern Rhone. And so that's what I made. I made th three wines, Sauvignon Blanc, Syrah, and M5. And I still make those three wines. Uh, we've expanded the repertoire a little bit now because rosé has become such a big thing. Everybody. Oh, boy. It's huge. And um, so um, Fred was unbelievably generous to let me make wines there for about five years. And then the Firestone family was incredibly generous to let me use uh, a space above their Curtis winery uh, on Fox and Canyon Road. And um, I, I moved into there in 2000. Oh, let's see, that was 2006. And then in 2011, the Firestone family came and said, hey, you know, we really want this space back, so take your time, like move out you know, two or three years. <laughs> and because uh, they're just, they're that kind of people. And, and I just said, hey, you know, if you need the space, I'll try and find a space. I found a space like in June of 2012, and we moved everything down into, up, up into Buellton and, and coalesced the entire winery into one one space, the warehouse, the winery, our offices, because our offices were in Happy Canyon, the winery was in Los Olivos, <laughs> and our warehouse was in Buellton, and we were running around like knuckleheads. And, and where so do you live? I, you I live now, in Montecito, right? I live right? in Montecito now, yeah. But at the time, I lived up in up in the valley. And now you have two places now, right? We have so two tasting rooms. Tasting um, rooms, yeah. got it. And then we have a winery, which also is a tasting room on weekends, hmm. and it's up in Buellton. And it's on Industrial Way, the, the hippest new street. That is the, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's the street, right? It is the Industrial street. Industrial Eats. Industrial Eats is there. The Bottleist is there. There's and what's two, the place at the end? That's called Teravant. Teravant. And they've got that restaurant upstairs. Which is called The Bottleist. Yes. Which is the ex-chef of Barbarino. Oh, okay. And, uh, apparently he's killing it. I'm embarrassed to say I've never eaten there. Um, and you work on that street. I work about, I could walk there. <laughs> We run our winery like a French winery. We serve lunch. What does that mean? We serve lunch to the to the staff, uh, and uh, every day, a, a, a home cooked serious meal, every day. And I cook it. That's where I get my. That's where I get oh. my uh, my cooking done. You get to keep your muscle going. Right. I have a know. working kitchen. You know, with stocks and with you know we we. You know how it is. A kitchen's either working yeah. or it's yeah. not. And you, Mark, you know that. I but, know. Uh, I know. So we have a working kitchen that we're always moving things forward, and and we serve lunch. And some days in, in you know, cold a cold January, will be three of us there. Uh, but like these days, right now with harvest, and we have a bunch of interns. We're about twelve every day. Nice. So we sit down and we break bread and we have lunch every day. We drink a little bit of wine. We taste wines. Because we're not. I mean, doesn't doesn't just life just seem like we just don't have enough time on the planet? Like we should probably spend a little more time. It's a very table. enjoyable time. Yeah. And when guests come, which yeah. is which is often, we usually have a guest almost every day. Because some people have figured out that we serve lunch every day. <laughs> They're like, oh, uh -oh. really? It's twelve uh -oh. o'clock, and I walked in the door. Like, oh You're yeah. You have people flying in from Finland. Saying, we, where is that? Place? We had one guy, one vineyard owner, who totally was rigging the system. He'd always <laughs> deliver his grapes right at twelve o'clock. Yeah, yeah. And like, oh, he's joining us for lunch. Oh, okay. Yeah. So why wouldn't he? Yeah. He, he did every yeah. time. Um, well, so, so we we that's that's a I think it's a nice it builds a nice culture for our company and it you know it's very you you feel like you're part of a a, a team and, and it's nice. So for we've got people listening in forty two countries, so that's all all over the world and. Um, do a little commercial for me for Santa Barbara County wines, where people have thought of Napa, you know, Sonoma, that area as, but we're on par or beating or whatever. So 
<clears throat> it started with, I think the movie Sideways gave us the visibility, but we'd already been in tow by that time. So yeah. let the people think, know about what, why. I think the remarkable thing is the, uh, the idea that you could come to Santa Barbara and, and it's, there's bougainvillea and avocados and oranges and it's a sort of a subtropical climate. It's hard to imagine that uh, 45 minutes away, you're in one of the coldest uh, growing climates for grapes in the world. Uh, what? It's, it's a region one out in Santa Rita Hills where we grow Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Mm. It's one of the coldest wine growing regions in, in all of California. Uh, and it's due to this transverse mountain range. Mm -hmm. This is the only part of North America where the mountains run east and west. So what it does for Santa Barbara, it actually creates a little subtropical zone there because the, the winds blow past Santa Barbara because it's not a not a stopped by <coughs> by right. uh, by mountains. But in the three valleys, the San Inez Valley, the Los Alamos Valley, and the Santa Maria Valley, the winds come straight off of our very cold Pacific Ocean, which causes upwelling. And these cold winds blow up into the up into the valley every night. And hmm. we have the most incredible diurnals of, of any place. I'll get to the wineries some mornings. It'll be 48 degrees. Mm. And then during the day, it'll be, you know, 92. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, so it's, just, a, it's a 44 degree swing that yeah. just can't be. It's unbelievable. So, yeah. but that, what that does is the grapes uh, retain their acidity. They don't ripen as quickly. They hang on the vine longer and they, they gain complexity and they don't get too ripe. And so the beauty of Santa Barbara County wines for the most part uh, is that they are, the grapes get physiologically ripe without a lot of sugar. Mm. And so it's mm. a really nice uh, balanced grape and then you get a wine that doesn't have an excessive amount of alcohol. So people like you have, have figured that out and have optimized this region for grapes and for wine production and it's become you know internationally known. We did the um, uh, balloon ride on oh. Father's Day this year and got to go up and see all of it from 2,500 feet, which was amazing. Who was it? Who was the first? What was the first vineyard? Someone said, this, we could grow grapes here. Um, well, it's sort of a toss up. I mean, certainly the Firestone family was the first to sort of go into it uh, commercially. Um, and then Richard Sanford and Michael Benedict um, in discovering uh, the limestone outcroppings of uh, off of Santa Rosa Road um, were were pioneers uh, as well. Um, and you know now the the guys who were the young Turks of the beginning of the whole thing, guys like Jim Clendenin from Obon Climat, who worked at Zaka Mesa when that was one of the that was one of the first commercial wineries as well. Bob Lindquist worked at Zaka Mesa. Uh, he's Coupe Winery. Uh, Adam Tolmach worked at Zakamesa. He's Ojai. So there was uh, Zakamesa really spawned a lot of a lot of mm -hmm. people who started their own wineries. Um, but it was all in the sort of early '70s, and Andre Teleschef came out, came down, and consulted with the Firestone family and told them what to, what to plant. And they were all extraordinarily wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they really didn't know. Really? Uh, well, in, the, in those days, they planted everything. They planted Riesling, Cabernet, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. Syrah all next to each other. They didn't plant Syrah because they didn't have Syrah, but they planted all these sort of uh, uh, varietals. And that's not how a great vineyard works. You can't have good Riesling next to good Cabernet Sauvignon. Riesling is a cold climate grape and it needs to be cold in a very cold area. Cabernet Sauvignon needs to be very warm. And so Cabernet Sauvignon couldn't even be grown in, in Santa Barbara County until they discovered Happy Canyon, which is all. Which, which is, is one specific canyon in correct. this whole ecosystem that Where you, you can, can grow this grape. Correct. And so in, in Happy Canyon, there's a mesa that 
shuts off the ocean flow mm. and you go back into that canyon and it's warm enough there to ripen uh, the Bordeaux varietals of Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Bordeaux, and Malbec. How much science is involved in this? I try and take the science out of it. It was so funny because I had a guy, uh, a, a British guy, who, who visited the winery and was saying, you know, he, I, it seemed old world even though he was in the new world. And I, <laughs> I, I, I almost wrote back, you know, you know, the world was all created at the same time. Because uh, that's, the, that's the classic thing that French uh, wine snobs say about, I only drink old world wines. Okay. And because, you know, we're called the new world because we've, we've been making wine for a much shorter period of time. But... You go to the old world, you go to France now, and you see the winemaking there, and it's so mechanical, and no one even touches the things anymore, and everything's, you know, they use hydraulic punch-down tools, and it's all stainless steel, and hmm. it's all sterile. And we're doing it the old world way. We're, we're, we do it all hand punch-downs, and we... Uh, what's a, Sorry, what's a punch-down? Uh, when you ferment red grapes, you have to push the cap. So the, the carbon dioxide creates a cap for the skins. To float, they float up to the top. In right. order to extract the flavor and the color from the, from the wine, you have to push that down back into the wine. Oh, got it. And that's how you, got it. That's how you extract color and flavor. from Because the pulp is white. It's only the skin that's red. And how long <clears throat> do, you, do the skins live? Mean, because that's all... That's very, another. Very, that's, that's an a, art. That's an art. That's another beautiful thing about being in a colder climate. If you're in a warm climate, you're doing you know fermentations in an uncontrolled temperature uh, spot, your fermentations just fire off, you know, and so you'll you get four day fermentations, and that leads for a very highly a very hot temperature. You get a highly extracted wine of really dark color. Think Australia, Syrahs. Mm. You know, they're all highly alcoholic. They ferment like blistering fast because then they they make these jammy, dark, powerful. Wines <clears throat> on the on the other end of the spectrum is us. Our fermentations last anywhere from seven to twenty-one days. We even make a wine where we do a sixty-day fermentation, and you would think that would make a darker, more tannic wine. And in right. fact, it makes a more elegant, hmm. softer, uh, less colored wine. We had John Gerke of Caribbean Coffee, and and his uh, he was saying that the. Uh, the, we, we like to talk about the dragon in the story, and the dragon for him is oxygen, <laughs> with coffee, and mm-hmm. that, same, with, same with wine. Right, and he was he was equating it, and he was saying he was talking about how a good cup of coffee starts to deteriorate in about fifteen minutes hmm. uh, because the air hits it, and and you start to lose the notes and all of that. So how do you keep oxygen out of your equation? Well, the natural byproduct of fermentation is carbon dioxide. Right. <clears throat> so it's always blowing off, so you don't get oxygen in, in there during so the fermentation process. So it has a natural process. seal. But unlike coffee, you know, winemaking is called controlled spoilage. You Con- do what? Controlled spoilage. I've not heard that before. <clears throat> you do want to have ox- the wine to oxidize, but slowly. So when you put wine in barrel, it's essentially oxidizing. Mm. We know that because we have to keep filling it back up. So it's evaporating somewhere. Right. So at some point there, between that in that wood, there's the wine is meeting air, and you're getting oxidation. And so you want to, but you want to, you limit that by keeping your barrels full. I limit that by, <coughs> excuse me, by um, um, keeping the winery uh, at 55 degrees. So every great winery I've ever been to in my entire life has been cold. Mm-hmm. And so you sort of like get that little 
light bulb goes off in your head like, oh, wait, cold wineries make better wine. It's mm. like that simple. Because you put wine in barrel in a cold winery and the kinetics are very slow, it's, it just soaks into the wood a little bit. It doesn't go into the wood as the winery gets warm during the day and expands into the wood and cold at night where it, where it contracts out of the wood, especially in Santa Barbara where you know, sure. we're just we're talking sure, about sure, the internal. Sure. So we keep it at 55 degrees 24-7 and we don't have the wine expanding and contracting in and out of the wood and spoiling mm-hmm. too quickly. And we use thicker stave wood. And so, you know, it, everything you choose to do depends on what your, what your final goal is. I always say I make wine for my children and I make wine for my children. Certainly M5 and Sauvignon Blanc and Rosé I make for my children because I need the money <laughs> uh, to send them to college. And, uh, and those wines sell you know, relatively quickly. They're not really designed to age a long time. They're for restaurants or for immediate consumption. But then we make a whole series of wines that are made for my children so that when I'm dead and they're pulling corks, they're like, hey, dad was a great winemaker. Mm-hmm. And so we have wines that we're making, which we expect to age for 20 to 30 years in a cellar at a proper, properly stored. Everything you're, every time you're, you're talking about, you know, the thickness of wood, the temperature and the thing, I keep going back to your, your uh, earlier statement about, like, I learned every station in the restaurant. Yeah. Right. I, ha- I had to know every station right. in the restaurant. Yeah. And that's what, what extensive traveling, by having the restaurant, we was able to travel to all these different wine regions. And by having great friends like Clendenin and Brander and, and Bob Lindquist and being able to go to their wineries, it helped them work. And I just stole a little bit mm-hmm. from each mm-hmm. one of them. And that's how we, we run the winery. So that first job was 400 cases. What are you at now? Uh, we're at 16,000. <laughs> yep. And, and those sell out? Pretty consistently. You know, we have some wines that we need to, we try and have them last for a year so that places like Lucky's can order the M5 consistently year, year after yeah. year. So we go into the next vintage and the wines are pretty consistent as far as flavors. I mean, they're, obviously we have vintage characteristics, but... Um, what a fun business this is for you. Oh, it's great. It's, it's, I, I'm, it's you know, in, in the beginning, I always said, I, you know, it's a lifestyle, not a living, both the restaurant and the winery, but it's a living now, and it is still a great lifestyle. You, the way you do business at the, is at the table with friends drinking wine. and Which gets get to travel to being a, a waiter. You're at the table with friends. Right. Uh, so I still, uh, I still <laughs> cook, and cooking's a young man's game. <laughs> I'm telling you. You know, it's just, there's just, there's a lot of stuff to do, right? There's a lot of stuff to do. Is winemaking the same thing or is it a little better as we get older? You know, I think, you know, the 400 cases I made myself for the first five years, I was a one-man show. I did everything myself. And now I have a team. Yeah. um, And I, you know, I don't, I'm not there uh, punching down every, uh, every fermenter. Uh, we have five stronger young men and women who can do that. Um, so yeah, it, it, as you, I think, um, get older, uh, you, you have to promote yourself to be able to do, accomplish the same goal in the, in the production level that we're at without having to do it all yourself. Right. And so the same thing with cooking, you know, you, when you, if you become an executive chef, you rarely cook, Right. but you supervise and, and, and teach and mentor and same thing. And so that's what I'm doing with the winery, you know, and, and I, I've uh, just like with the restaurant, we spun off all these guys to open their own restaurants and start their own wineries the, with the, with the winery, people work for me and then they go off and the winemaker at Morgan winery in Monterey was my assistant winemaker. And he's now the winemaker at Morgan, this huge winery and, and, uh, people, people move on and do things. But, uh, As so I think for the cooking for the young man's game is, is have someone help you. 
I have I have someone yeah. who comes in every day and helps me oh, chop nice. and, and helps me yeah. cook, and so it makes it much easier because it's just hard to feed twelve people every day. Yeah, been there. <laughs> uh, as that person who's worked for you for several years has an opportunity, they're going to get to go be a winemaker someplace else. They're they're moving on. You've incubated them. Their anxiety prior to coming into telling you, hey, Doug, I, can we talk, right? And, you, and that's probably exactly how they open it. And I'm, tell me if you feel like you're excited that they're moving on. I generally am. If it's something good and they have an opportunity, you know, you, you can't say you can't go, obviously. Right. And I always am sad when I lose someone. But, uh, but I, I totally understand. I had a really key person just quit. Uh, she got a great job. It has been a, we have benefits, but she was a part-time employee. We didn't really have anything full-time for her right now. And she, she said, hey, I got a full-time job. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, she runs the tasting room in Buellton right now, which is two days a week. And I just said, yeah, great, that's fantastic, good for you. So on, when they're walking out the door, is there one piece of advice you leave them with? Don't let the door hit you all the way out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, not really. I think I've done my job. I don't really counsel out the door. Um, One more thing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but I, and also, you know, I don't know if you've noticed it, but there's a psychological thing that happens when people leave companies. Um, they, uh, they sort of make it easier on themselves by thinking, oh, you know, this is going to, I'm going to have such a better, what I'm doing is going to be so much better that they think they're, they don't remember their time as fondly walking out mm -hmm. that door mm -hmm. as they do a year later yeah. when they come back and say, oh, you know what? This you have no you, idea. You, you were, you, yeah, Thank this you. was the best job I ever had. Thank right. you. And it takes about a year. And, right. uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I recognize that psychological thing that happens. And you should be. If you're not walking out that door excited about your next opportunity, you shouldn't walk out the door. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, there's I our lesson. Yeah. <laughs> there. Doug, thank you so much. Well, thank you, guys. It was really nice to be here. One of the things we do on the show is at the very end of it, we offer you the opportunity to name this episode as if it's a fine bottle of wine and has a name because someone's looking at the 170-plus episodes we have. So they may have come in through a friend said, hey, you've got to listen to Vlad or Gerhard or one of these other people. And now they're like, what am I going to listen to next? So the title is like super important. What would he would we call this conversation? We would call this wine, and then in parentheses, and food. Okay. I thought we should call it- Is good oh. living. Is oh, I okay. stepped on it. I thought you were gonna say <laughs> controlled spoilage. <laughs> you don't really say no, that. Con controlled spoilage is <laughs> yeah, Out of context, that yeah. could be taken wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But wine, we, are, we have, a, we, actually that's our company um, motto in all, all of our boxes. It says wine yeah. is good living. And that's our, that's oh. our company motto. Yeah. And, uh, but in, since and you we, add the end Well, since we talked about food so much in this episode. I'd just I've, say yeah. wine is good living. Okay. I, yeah, as you, as you okay. choose. Yeah. Wine is good living. That's our motto. I also want to uh, let everyone know that my listener knows I'm a Tedster and we run TEDx Santa Barbara. You've been a, a great supporter of our effort. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Let the world know that, that uh, we, we deeply appreciate that. It makes a big deal. Uh, TEDx Santa Barbara is about focusing on the, the amazing ideas that come out of Santa Barbara. And we have, we've branded a, a new effort. It's called Tastes of TEDx. And so we're curating the tastes 
great. Uh, for all the audience. So that's food and wine that's and great. beer and all of that. Yeah. So glad to have you a part of that. And uh, if you're interested in partnering with our podcast, send us a note to partner at 805connect.com. Now, Patrick, if someone sets down their glass of wine as they're <laughs> listening to this podcast, what could they do to help I'm us? I'm just trying to imagine anybody like drinking wine and listening to a podcast. It seems like a very <laughs> discongruous <laughs> <laughs> or bougie, perhaps. But yes. uh, a rate, rate review. Uh, let us know what we're doing right. Let us know what we're doing wrong, uh, how we can improve our controlled spoilage and uh, allow us to uh, have access to your thoughts. So send Mark an email um, and then have your friends subscribe. That's the number one uh, way to help us. The more listeners we have, uh, the more opportunity we have uh, to have an audience that is fully engaged and interested in what we're doing. I think while you're driving to Santianez yeah. to go on a wine tour, you could be listening to one of our shows. Not a bad idea. Uh, that's a great one. So uh, I would love to hear from you if you have ideas. If this uh, particular episode gave you a thought, oh, gosh, Mark, you should go talk to so-and-so, uh, I would love to. Um, drop me a note at mark at 805connect.com. Thank you in advance for that. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.